0: Hello and welcome to the Press Room Podcast with me, Sam Duffett.
1: And me, Sam Fielding. The Press Room Podcast is a podcast series bringing you an exclusive insight into the sporting industry by speaking to managers, coaches, players and members of the media to discuss their journey in sport. On
0: today's podcast, we're speaking to a man who in the eyes of many Leeds United supporters
1: has the best job in
0: the world. It's the Athletics Leeds correspondent, Phil Hay.
1: Yes, Phil will be chatting to us about his 15 years experience covering the Whites, including tales about former owners, his relationship with many managers he's worked with, as well as reflecting on the current team led by Marcelo Bielsa. So please welcome to the Press Room Podcast, Phil Hay.
0: Yes, welcome to the Press Room Podcast, uh, it's Leeds United writer, Phil Hay. Uh, hi, Phil, how's things with you, mate? You okay?
2: I'm, I'm very well, thanks. Thanks for having me on.
0: Yeah, good to, good to see you. I know things are probably a bit different for you at the moment. A uh, bit of homeschooling on the agenda, I believe, as well.
2: Yes, um, for the foreseeable future, although I, I like the reports that they might rethink this at the start of March and we've maybe only got three or four weeks to go because I'm struggling with the five-year-old phonics and basic edition <laughs> and all the terminology that I, that I didn't realise existed in schools these days and, and that I'm Googling constantly. But we're surviving, we're surviving like everybody else.
0: Yeah, I was thinking you could probably give the uh, the kids a bit of a history lesson, perhaps, on the last uh, last 10 years of Leeds. So with the managers they've had, that would be some uh, some lessons to teach them, I imagine.
2: Yeah, the chaos of the last 16 years. Name every Leeds manager from um, from 2004 onwards. I actually think my youngest would be quite good at that. My eldest isn't remotely interested, but my youngest is is quite obsessed and, and taken with BL So that might be something to fill the time, actually. Yeah, good thinking.
0: Well, there you go. That we're, we're coming up with all the good ideas for you, Phil. Don't worry about it. Um, but if we can, Phil, if we, if we can start about obviously, a lot of people listening to this podcast will know what you do now and and, and you kind of um, roll covering lead. But I, I guess something that that we'd like to speak about is kind of how it all started, really, for you. Um, obviously, it, you know, those that will know you and that will be listening to you know that you're not a resident Yorkshireman. You mm-hmm. haven't got the Yorkshire uh, Yorkshire tones like myself. So tell us about growing up in Scotland and, and, and what that was like and, and how you ended up getting yourself into kind of sports reporting, really.
2: Well, I, I grew up in a place called Pennycook, which is about 10 miles south of Edinburgh. And, and everybody knows Pennycook because there are no motorways up there, give or take. So if you want to drive to Edinburgh from Newcastle or generally down south, you, you go past 100 signs to Pennycook before you get there. But I mean, I I you know I was born in, in 1980 and, and I grew up in, in that era where when it came to sports writing and, and sports journalism, Particularly the writing side, you're only you're only conscious of what was in your daily newspapers. Uh, it it was very very difficult to to have any access to football writers. It, it wasn't like it is today, where you're very aware of. The, the different types of coverage and you, and you have huge amounts of, of coverage and, and personalities on Twitter, people you can you can get quite close to if you want to and, and ways in which you can follow the industry. It was all a bit of a mystery to me. And I, I mean, we used to get the Scotsman every morning. And it was from, you know, that that time where if you had gone to bed early and you wanted to know the football results from the night before, you had no way of knowing about switching the radio on and hoping to catch the news n- until the paper Drop through through the door um so i mean i i was always kind of subconsciously interested in it in and I, I loved football and i read a lot about it but i never really gave any thought to to doing journalism or, or being a football writer until secondary school when we had in, in our english class and um, what we used to call discursive essays and and basically you you picked an argument you you wrote about both sides and, and he came to a conclusion. And I wrote a really long, boring piece on whether or not um, boxing should be banned, you know, because of the, the impact on the brain injuries and, and everything else. And my English teacher said to me, this is like five pages long and parts of it are pretty tedious. So given that you're so into football, why don't you just write five, six, 700 words on is football good as a professional sport is professionalism something that's been positive for for football or or actually have have the negatives outweighed the the upsides of it and and i got a i got one for that equivalent of a of a first and and it was the first time i'd really given any thought to actually trying to write about it and to write about it in a in a constructive way or or in a journalistic way and for that point I, i just started to look for um for opportunities to to do that as a career so i look at universities that were doing journalism courses of which back in the 90s there weren't actually that many i think i remember finding about five or six that had properly credible or or decent journalism courses and and in the end i applied to and was accepted by the university of sheffield who did a a three-year undergraduate degree in sports journalism which kind of covered everything you did court reporting you did council reporting you, you did investigative journalism but there were also sports modules in there which were obviously what I was kind of homing in on Um, and it was a really good grounding and and I was lucky enough to pick up work experience that kind of opened the door to to a job in football writing straight after I finished. Um, So in in a lot of ways and I guess this is true for quite a lot of writers it, it was quite piecemeal really it just sort of fell into place over time and then a lot of the, you know on occasions it was a case of being in the right place at the right time and and things falling into your lap when you when you needed to and I think if you spoke to a lot of journalists certainly of, of my age they'd probably tell you very similar stories. I
1: feel they talked about influencers there in terms of your teacher and saying uh, football's your kind of niche and, and you know what to talk about but in terms of who else influenced you going forward into sports reporting who was that for you?
2: Well, I was lucky to have um, some really good tutors at university. One in particular, a guy called Jonathan Foster, who had is is well known for covering the um, the uh, James Bulger trial back in the early nineties, but also did a lot of football writing out at various World Cups and uh, and other things like that. I um, knew the industry particularly well, and and was very good with advice on what to do, which jobs to look at, what what to think about. I mean, I I always enjoyed reading. Um, back in that those days, writers like Paul Hayward, for example. I, I liked the the feature writers and the, the colour writers, particularly on the broadsheets. And it was a good way of getting to learn what their style was like, what, what the style of, of writing needed to, to be like to to work for that sort of paper or or that sort of organization. But also to pick up on, you know, the the ton of phrase that they would use or the 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 things that really engage you about it. I mean there is definitely a big difference between kind of hardcore match report and you know your your blow by blow account of what happened and which is where where we all start and the more colorful pieces that people produce sometimes to to really really tight deadlines um and i i always say i do a little bit of work from time to time but a lecturing or or seminars at leeds trinity um and also Huddersfield university and i always try to say to them read as much as you can and and as broadly as you can because it's it, it is probably the best way of developing your own style you see what you what people do that you like you see what people do that you don't like you kind of find out what you want to be um in terms of, of your own style um you know back in back in the day people like henry winter as well you bigger writers it, it was just a it was a really really good way of of getting some insight without being able to to get anywhere near to any of these guys a way of getting some insight into what the job involved and and how you how you did it if you did it well
0: I guess by coming down from um, from, from Scotland, Phil, to, to Sheffield, that must have been a big move at the time for you. That must have been a big kind of like, you know, n- not a jump into the unknown, but obviously, you you know, it is a bit of a risk, I guess, coming and making that move.
2: Yeah, it's funny. I was talking to my wife about this the other day because obviously I was moving um, 250 miles south and, and I was only 17 at the time. We, we finished school um, slightly earlier than they did down in England. So I think when I got down to Halls, I was the only person who wasn't, um, who wasn't legally able to drink and obviously didn't drink due to being underage. Um, but <laughs> never, it, never. But uh, we, were, we were saying that, you know, with what's happened with COVID, there would have been a lot of uh, prospective students who would have been, you know, getting ready to go last summer, would have been getting ready to go this summer, taking that really big leap, but finding that it, it just you know, what, what you're preparing yourself for isn't there in the end because the universities aren't functioning as they, as they should do or they would do in, in normal periods. Your accommodation is restricted. You're not able to go out drinking or doing all the stuff that you would do on, on Freshers' Week. And I think if you were moving so far away, it would be incredibly difficult to do that because you'd be going to to nothing really, apart from online learning. Whereas Sheffield was a great city and, and a great university, so very easy to mix into, very easy to settle down there. I mean, so much so that I, I've never gone home. You know, we moved to Leeds after I finished at, at university, and we we now live up in up in York. So you know, moving all of about forty miles in in the end. Um, but I don't remember seeing it as a particularly big deal. You know, I don't remember seeing it as, a, as a, a massive leap. And I think that was because I'd been to Sheffield and I'd liked the place. But also I was really keen on the degree. So it wasn't as if I was finding something for the sake of going to university. I was kind of going to university because that was what I, I really wanted to do. And I could see the, the kind of end product of it if it if it all went well. But best decision ever. I mean, I, I had the option of going to Napier in Edinburgh, which would have been just round the corner. But I wanted to get out and about and I have to say with hindsight as well, it's been nice to be able to write about English football rather than, than Scottish football, because it's very much a closed shop up there. Whereas down here there's there's a whole lot more interest.
0: Yeah, I guess, I guess kind of following on from the back of that, the moving to Sheffield probably started out your knowledge of um the passion for sport, definitely in Yorkshire. Um, you know, is uh, it is like uh, you know, like a, a religion in some areas, as it is definitely in Leeds. We'll get onto that a bit further on. Well, that must have really kind of ignited you and seeing, like, wow, there's, like you said, a massive deal going on down here, and there's loads of different aspects to cover.
2: Well, you start to find out about clubs that, for for a long time, you only really saw on the the grandstand's final score, you know, the names of them, and then you'd you'd see the badges and players' faces and so on in Panini sticker books and and that type of stuff. But because it was very much pre-internet, um, you you won't you know, you weren't exposed to that properly. You didn't have any understanding of what these clubs were like. I knew all about Sheffield Wednesday, Sheffield United, but I had no idea what Hillsborough would be like to be inside or, or Bramall Lane either. And, and you start to realise as well just how many clubs there are down in England and just how well supported they all are. And I, I've always been kind of aware of that going home and away with Leeds. The, the, from time to time, you, you hear it said that there are potentially too many professional clubs, or or at least the game isn't built to sustain so many. But you see how many people travel with them and and how many clubs are able to hold up really decent attendances at home. And it is a, it is a massive culture. It is a huge cultural thing down here. It's not as if England's alone like that. You know, you see that in, in a lot of countries. But I think in terms of the lower leagues, I, I get the sense that there are very few countries, you know, that, that have Leagues as competitive or as well followed as the Championship, for example. It was it was one of those things where, with Leeds you always felt that they were punching well below their weight as a club in that division. But actually, there was still plenty to be had in that division. And it's been funny because we we often said, when you get promoted into the Premier League and you, you start looking at mid-table finishes, will you kind of yearn a bit for the championship and how competitive it was and how on edge everything was down there? And as it's turned out, not really because it's been so good under Bielsa in the Premier League, but it's, it is, it's a totally different world down here. And I think up north, you you very much get sucked into an agenda dominated by two clubs, whereas down here it's it's so much broader um, and so much more interesting.
1: Just uh, moving on from university, uh, t- any time at the Yorkshire Evening Post was that job that one you just jumped into straight after uni, and you just wanted to get into work and 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 learn and take what you learned from university into real life world?
2: No, I I went to the Press Association first. I'd I'd done work experience with them through a second and and third year um, in Sheffield and got a full-time job with them on one of their football desks that was covering um, EFL football. We were basically given a group of eight, nine, ten clubs which were our responsibility to cover every day, which was quite difficult. I mean, we were based out in Howden towards Hull, which was kind of the middle of nowhere. They, They had been based in the middle Leads, Leeds, but for, for various reasons and, and you know, f- for their better judgment, they decided to, to relocate to a huge new building out there. So you would find yourself in Howden trying to write about Colchester and End and, and Brighton and others, but it was a really good grounding and, and it was a really good um, way of learning to build up contacts and to, to dig out stories and everything else. But I'd, I'd always wanted to get onto a, a big local paper and to cover a, a big team for them. Um, And the the job on the Evening Post came up in 2004. It was a sports writer's job initially, rather than the, the chief football writer's job that was already occupied. Um, but it was it was a really really easy move to take that i mean aside from anything else i was living in leeds and and it was much easier to you know much easier logistically but i knew that there'd be far more in the way of opportunities to do proper writing and proper interviewing and, and features and everything else um and it was it was just a great move for me i, I don't think i expected to be there for nigh on 20 years at all i don't think I, I ever expected to be in any job for for that length of time but i went over there in, in 2004 and it was only 2019 when the athletic staff started up that, that I left in the end.
0: I imagine, I, I know where the, the old officers were for the, the YEP in the middle of Leeds, and the, I imagine, like you said, I, again, I've been to Howden where the, the PA officers are, and it's like they said, the middle of nowhere, and the, being in the middle of Leeds, you know, that buzz, and, and I know Leeds is a city, the football is 24-7. That must have been a really big factor and a great way to be working for you in amongst all that kind of, um, <laughs> well, I guess at times, definitely madness, wasn't it?
2: I I think as well. I mean, when the week I joined was the week that the Krasner takeover happened um, and they they were about three or four weeks from getting relegated from the Premier League. So it was it was absolute chaos at Ellen Road and the Union Post was really active in in covering it. You know, it was uh, it's not that local papers don't have the the same impact or or any impact now, but it was back in the days where they could shift close to 100,000 copies a day. And, you know, we're, we're just constantly on top of issues at the club and, and were very good at campaigning about them, you know, very strong with front pages, back pages. Um it was, you know, they, they got involved in the politics of it and and they tried you could tell that they tried really hard to represent the city and, and to write for the city. And and you just knew, I mean I when I took over the chief football writer's job in 2006 um one of the well the, the the best known chief football writer they've ever had don waters who was there through the review um and, and right up to um, beyond wilkinson as well he said to me you, you'll never ever want for a story at leeds because you know there is always something going on and even if there isn't something that's breaking news or something that's particularly big there will always be issues or, or agendas in the background that will give you something to write about and I don't think he really understood what was coming, you know. I don't think he could have foreseen what was going to go on from 2006 onwards because because none of us did, you know. Like the, the people who came through the door, like Chilino and and Bates and others, it, it was it was impossible to to see a lot of that coming, but it wasn't wrong. And I mean, it, it's still the case now. You never feel it leads, like it's dull or it's boring or there's nothing particularly happening. I mean, in a lot of ways, we're kind of lucky with Bielsa because he's made it as calm and as placid as as it's ever been in, in my time writing about them. But because he is so interesting and because there's so much to, to think about and to, to write about with him, you, you've constantly got things going on in your head. So, I mean, it was a great move journalistically in terms of the, the paper I went to, but it was a great move also in terms of the club I was able to write about.
1: We were actually talking to um, a fellow athletic writer, uh, Simon Hughes on the podcast, Oh yeah. and, he, and he described like Merseyside having a total obsession for football and it, like just growing up all the, the people involved in the community. I guess that's the same with Leeds really, isn't it? That everyone looks for that result on a Saturday afternoon, have Leeds picked up those three points. But yeah, I guess it's just that obsession, isn't it, within, within the city?
2: It is. There's a slight difference over here that there's obviously a, a very big core of people who are, are into the rugby league um, and Leeds Rhinos. I mean, it's as, as big a rugby league city as you'll find just about anywhere, I think. But you, you're starting to see now that the interest that that is there. And I think I, I, I've i been to games and particularly on the Bates, there was one at Home to Wolves where the crowd fell to, to 16,000. Um, I don't think that's a reflection on the interest or the fanaticism. I think it was just a, a reflection of the total apathy that was kicking in. And, and the same, you know, as the years went on, in the absence of what seemed to be any vision or plan or, or strategy or, or proper, proper ambition to be, to be successful, people did drift away. You know, people people found it hard to engage, but it didn't stop them still having crowds of, you know, 20 25,000 on average. But, I mean, at the moment, and obviously the stadiums are empty, but but prior to the, the lockdown, they were capacity every week and, and they were up to the cap of season tickets at 23,000. They've got a waiting list for season tickets of about 20,000 at the moment. And you know, the plan is to to upgrade the stadium so it increases to fifty thousand, sixty thousand, something like that. And I do think the the demand is there. And Simon's right, Liverpool, Liverpool has that about it. It's it's just football mad over there. And I don't think there's anything that um that competes, you know, in any way in the way that from time to time the Rhinos do over here. But I mean, Bielsa and the the growth over the past. Two three years has has taken Leeds way beyond the level of attention that the Rhinos could could have hoped to reach, which is not a criticism of them at all. The really outstanding rugby league club, but I think you're starting to see now that the global reach and everything else that people have been banging on about with Leeds for that long period in in the EFL is is absolutely there.
0: Yeah, I I think the obvious difference as well between between Liverpool and Leeds is obviously Leeds is a one-team city as well, you know, which is mm-hmm. obviously they got the rugby, but in terms of football, um, I know you touched on it earlier there, Phil. Um, I remember reading one of your pieces that you wrote, and and you said that uh, Leeds fans often send you you know many many messages every morning, just asking what's going on, any news, just they're just desperate for anything, they you know, whatever it might be. Uh, I, I think <laughs> you know it, it can be anything from transfer news to you know who's who's doing the cleaning today or you know whatever <laughs> it might be they're just desperate for any kind of yeah anything that's going on
2: well, this morning's has been what's the pitch looking like? Because they've the, the surface, there's a, a much longer story about this, but it's a very old pitch, like the drainage and the you know the, the full structure of it is ancient. It's a good 25 years old. So it needs gutted and it was going to be done last summer, but then COVID kicked in and it will be done this summer instead. But basically, the, the previous surface didn't hold up on it. And as of the, the Brighton game, the last home game, it had deteriorated to the point where it was becoming a, a big problem. So they've paid 300 grand to get a new surface that was being grown for Spurs and it's down and it'll be used tonight. And, you know, as Soslaw has it, it's now covered in snow because (laughs) that's just how the weather is. And, you know, everything's kind of conspiring against them. But it can't be worse than than what they've replaced. But, yeah, I mean, that's been this morning's how's the pitch doing, what's the pitch like, this, that and the other. I think this January gone was everybody's worst nightmare because it, it was kind of telegraphed from the start the leads weren't going to do anything. They weren't going to spend any money. They didn't feel the need to sign anybody. They're going to delay all the the recruit the next batch of recruitment until um, the summer. So you had a lot of questions of any news, anybody signing, what, what's going on, to which consistently the answer was always, look, like, nothing really, you know, nothing in the, in this period, which is never what anybody wants to hear. But you see, that's the, the big difference as well. I mean, when, when I started on the Evening Post, you would get a little bit of correspondence um, by email, you would get a bit more by mail, but, you know, it, it wasn't as if you were getting bags and bags of this stuff. It, it would come from from time to time, whereas Twitter being what it is, it is basically just a, an open door for for questions you know i I have said to people over the years from time to time it isn't a 24 hour q a service (laughs) this you know if it comes across that way sometimes if i don't reply i either haven't seen it or i I don't know the answer or i genuinely can't be bothered without being being offensive at like 11 o'clock at at night um and that is i mean twitter i think by a mile is the best example of how how the game has changed um journalistically i mean you'll know that as well how it's changed for players you know the way players have to act what they have to do um and it's not i mean i i know from speaking to to some of them that it's not even about the ways in which you have to be careful and the things not to do it's also because of endorsements and sponsors sponsorship packages and everything else it's about the stuff that you do have to do and the things that you have to remember and and you know the players to to be seen and to have a profile and and to be active on it i mean personally if I was a player I would try not to touch social media at all but it's not realistic to say that at all. It just isn't the way of the world.
1: Just a bit quick one before I move on to my question just leading up, uh, following on from the social media thing. in a journalistic world, how beneficial do you think social media has been or do you disagree with what I've just said there? Do you think it has been a, a bad thing for sports journalists or sports people in the industry?
2: I, I don't think it's been a bad thing. I mean, I, I particularly with Twitter, I don't use Facebook much and, and I don't use Instagram much. I don't I, I, I don't really understand the point of Instagram. For me, I see why other people like it, but I don't see a huge benefit um, from my perspective. Twitter is actually a really good news resource. I mean, if you take out the offensive stuff that's on there and the constant fighting and the, the aspects of it that are quite clearly negative without even having to have a debate about that, it it's... Never been easier to see what people in what journalists in Italy are saying about leads, what journalists in Spain are saying about leads, about the the news stories that they're finding over there. It's never been easier to approach people, um, that otherwise it would be very difficult to get to because potentially they follow you on Twitter or there are you know, there are ways on there in which you can find out routes of of contacting them. I think it is very, very valuable. It's, It's changed the job in the sense that you no longer there's no longer really any such thing as a as a back page um in the sense that news when it breaks tends to run when it does and it's not that you can't hold back certain things and it's not that you can't still save certain things for the for the newspaper but nobody thinks in, in that way anymore and every newspaper has Website, very active website. Um, a lot of them have subscription websites, mm. um, same as we do at that The that Athletic. Um, so I think in that regard, it, it's actually been pretty positive and there, there are healthy aspects to it. The, the problem is it, it doesn't seem possible on Twitter to, to filter out the negative sides of it. Um, and I, I do get the sense that more and more people, I don't know whether during COVID, People have had more time to pay attention to Twitter and social media. But I do get the sense that more and more people are starting to get a little bit tired of of the general atmosphere on there. Yeah,
1: definitely. I can imagine the 140 characters uh, limit uh, was a struggle for you sometimes <laughs> during the, the Leeds days. But coming back a little bit to the uh, Yorkshire Evening Post... Uh, You saw about the highlights, but one was Mad Friday, deadline day 2014, when uh, Massimo Salino became the majority shareholder at the club. Uh, I just wanted to ask, and then obviously sacked uh, their manager, Brian McDermott. Can you kind of set the scene on on what that day was like? Because I can just imagine it was absolute carnage.
2: Well, oh, it had been a messy week because the, there was a consulting, um going by the name of Sport Capital, which included um, uh, Andrew Flowers, who was the head of Enterprise Insurance. They were the club's shirt sponsor at the time. And, and also David Hague, who was the club's managing director. They had been talking about buying um, GFH, the Bahraini Bank, out for, by that stage, probably two months and it was starting to become apparent that it wasn't going to happen. Um, and that either the money wasn't there or they couldn't quite get um agreement in place. And really from nowhere, Chilino appeared and as he tended to do, you know, tried to get a deal done pretty much in the blink of an eye. He didn't do any due diligence um because he he didn't want to be scared off by by what was in the books. Um and on the, the Friday morning, the day of, of Mad Friday, I got a call from somebody at the club to say to me, look. I think this guy's going to do a deal with GFH later today. I think by the end of today, he'll have done a deal in some form that will that will make him prospective owner. You know, it'll need to be approved by the Football League. But I think as of tonight, um, it'll be in place that the, he's going to pay pay the money for the club. And and it was apparent as well that McDermott was going to be sacked because on the, the uh, midweek game Tuesday night, they played Ipswich at home. And um, Cellino had asked if Gianluca Fiesta, one of his um, old Middlesbrough player, one of his men, could um, sit on the bench with McDermott. And McDermott had said no. You could see it as a pretty clear challenge to his authority. But you knew from that that as soon as it came to the point where Cellino was in charge and and running the place that McDermott was going to be on very thin ice. Um, But because he didn't want to do anything to kind of, I I guess, attract miscarriage, uh, gross misconduct charge or, or anything like that, or give Chileno any reason to sack him for reasons other than football. He went ahead with a press conference anyway on Friday afternoon, and you had this bizarre scenario where you were sitting listening to McDermott, knowing that the chances were he was going to be out of the job you know, in, in no time at all. You had McDermott there answering questions, knowing exactly the same, but not wanting to skip the press conference because it, it could have consequences for him. Um, so we went away from that, and I started to write up for Saturday's paper because we had um, we had three pages uh, ahead of the Huddersfield game on the Saturday that needed to needed to be filled, and and you couldn't just leave it. You know, you couldn't. You had a deadline at ten, so things had to be written and, and articles had to be in place. But I wrote up, you know, his press conference. I wrote a back page story with, with quotes from him, other bits and pieces and you knew or you had a strong suspicion that at some point in the afternoon or early evening, you were going to have to bin it all because things were were going to happen. Um, And unbeknownst to us, somebody um, high up in the, on the GFH board or or one of their associates um, texted Chilino at around about five, six o'clock to say, congratulations on buying the club. And, even though it hadn't been approved and ratified by the EFL, Chilino took that to mean that, that he was in charge. So in no time, we started getting calls saying McDermott's been sacked, um, it's going to be Gianluca Festa on the bench tomorrow. Um, there was no word about um, McDermott's assistant, Nigel Gibbs, but as far as we could tell, he was still there, but you know, very, very vulnerable and, and likely to go. Neil Redfern, who was the, the Academy Manager, was was due to support Festa, but then they had to about turn on Festa because they were aware of the, the sudden backlash to all this. But it was it was the kind of multiple strands there. The temporary chief exec who was sacked and then reinstated and then sacked again. Um, two of the sponsors, Enterprise and Flamingoland, who sponsored the Academy, they said they were going to pull out, you know, they were going to withdraw the sponsorship and withdraw the support. And and it was absolute chaos. And, you know, you there were pictures of Chilino in reception there were stories about there was a funny tweet from a, a taxi firm in Leeds who were asking people to clear out the way of of the, the front of the stadium um supporters who'd gone down to the ground so that they could actually stop and pick Chilino up before they they ran out of petrol <laughs> and it was so incendiary and it was so messy that even Chilino realized by the following morning that um that he shouldn't have done it or at least that he couldn't do it like that and, and get away with it so so he kind of disappeared into the background um, Fester did as well Nigel Gibbs McDermott's assistant was given the team um, on the on the Saturday against Huddersfield along with Redfern and then bizarrely in true GFH style they reinstated McDermott um, midway through the second half with a statement on the website saying mm-hmm. literally just, we'd just like to clarify that Brian McDermott is still a manager you know as if there was as if it was peculiar that there was any, any question about this. So, What I mean, score was the game go, for? It? What was that, sorry? What score was the game? Well, they won 5-1, you see. They, they struggled <laughs> badly um, in the first half. And I, I've spoken to quite a few supporters who said that Festa was in the East stand that day. And he was um, right the way through the first half. He was constantly berating the players in the team because they were playing so poorly. But then it all clicked in in the second half. And he was taking pelters from people around him in the East Stand who were basically just abusing him because they, they knew what had what had gone on. So, I mean, it was a hideous, hideous shambles. And McDermott then did an hour-long press conference on the Monday talking about, you know, what had happened, how it felt, you know, what he was going to try and do from there. But, I mean, he was he was sort of fatally undermined at that point. And because Chilino didn't back off in terms of buying the club, you know he, he persisted with it and his takeover went through on appeal you knew you knew that it wouldn't be long for McDermott and that at some stage he he would go and And it was all it was all very sad and all very messy and all and you know all a bit regrettable in the end but come the summer after the takeover went through after a lot of messing about Chilino and McDermott they go the separate ways.
0: I guess when you were when you were the reporter there a lot of people would love to know kind of the, the links that you had obviously when Chilino got in through the door and he's over, he was officially in charge of the club. What kind of relationship did you have with him? And was it was it kind of a a working relationship where, you know Having, having worked in clubs myself, I know that the chairman and, and reporters can be, you know, in contact with each other, of a variety of different stuff. Was it like that at all? Or?
2: Yeah, no, it, it it certainly was to begin with. I mean, the one thing you found on Mad Friday was that, club you, you'll know yourself, club employees are, are pretty careful about what they say and, and who they speak to, particularly in the media. But on that night, you you just had constant stream of phone calls and messages on Twitter or, or WhatsApp, or I, I can't remember if WhatsApp existed at that point, but Text messages from people who were basically just trying to fill you in on what was going on because it was all so ridiculous. I mean, I I dealt with Chileno pretty closely and and regularly for about two years until he pretty much cut off communications after that. Um, I mean, on a personal level, I I always got on with him. You know, I I, I never I, we we rubbed along okay, but professionally, I just found it really difficult to tolerate or to you know to gloss over a lot of what he was doing and and a lot of the problems at, at the club it, it's kind of strange because financially he did make a difference and he did kind of make a positive difference and i i would always say that there's no question that in terms of the potential damage the club gfh will were infinitely worse as owners than Chilino was Chilino at least seemed to have some interest in the football as opposed to to just flipping the club and and making money that was my perception of what GFH were doing um but it was never going to be it was never going to be sustainable under him it was never going to be a success it was always going to have to pass on from him to somebody else and I think you know the ownership of the club now would agree that he he at least made it you know, attractive, and he at least made the club fairly saleable in a way that they really hadn't been when when he bought in. But I mean, he was absolutely bonkers, and, and he would phone you at two in the morning. He would <laughs> phone you at early hours, and 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 he would he'd be really explicit about his thoughts on managers and so on. I remember him phoning the, about David David Hockaday about two or three games in. Um, they'd lost at home to Brighton, and and just saying to me. I don't think this guy is right. I don't think I can stick with this guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, the weekend after that, they went to Watford and they lost 4-1. And it, it was a pant that Hockey Day was about to be sacked on the Saturday night. And then on the Sunday, nothing happened. So I phoned Chileno on and on, on the Sunday afternoon and asked him what was going on. And, and he said quite openly, you know, he said, I did want to sack him last night. Yeah, I decided he was going to go. He wasn't up to it and he wasn't good enough. But then I thought, actually, it's probably my fault. You know, this is probably my fault rather than his. So... I, I I shouldn't I shouldn't treat him like that. Um so you've got these quotes out in public, which are great for us and you know, it's a fantastic story. But it's absolutely baffling to see a club chairman actually saying that and, and saying it publicly. And then in any case, Leeds lost in the League Cup at Bradford the following Thursday and, and hockey day was sacked um, the next day. So you know, it it was like that, really. It, it you were just waiting for things to things to go wrong. You were waiting for things to to blow up, and it was only really in his last season when he got Gary Monk and Rabizani, you know, made moves to buy in and and to start um, moving towards a full takeover. That he that he pretty much disappeared from view and, and was able to control himself.
1: I guess it was quite a toxic time at least during that, especially when you've got angry fans um and, and their kind of non-support towards uh chilino was that anything directed to you in terms of that on social media from the fans or or what they wanted to get across to the team or the owner
2: the, there were pockets of people who were supportive of chilino i mean and i I can only guess. It didn't ever seem to me like they were big pockets. It seemed like a, a pretty small minority. But, I mean, they're very vociferous and very vociferous with me. I, I had a lot of criticism from them on, on Twitter and via email and, and everything else about the, the coverage towards him, which in the main was was pretty negative. Um, but you were very aware and, and more aware of the, the vitriol towards Chilino and just the frustration um, with the way he was running the club. I, I think there was anger about some of what he was doing. But... When it comes to the bigger picture, I think it was the frustration of realising that for as long as he stayed at the club, they were never going to go anywhere, realistically. Mm -hmm. you It was highly unlikely that that was going to work. So if he ended up being owner for five or six years, the chances are that you're going to write off five or six years more. Um, in, in the championship you know and, and it did need a different direction and it did need more money and a, and a, a change change of tack. but yeah no absolutely I mean that again was the one of the big changes was that when Twitter materialized and, and became big uh, people were able to direct criticism directly at David Hague, GFH, um, Chilino and, and others you know other people involved in in the club I, I'm not sure that it's a, an especially good thing that I mean there are circumstances in which they, they absolutely deserve it I think the, the downside of it is that it's strayed into kind of direct criticism of players as well and Sam will know this from from Fleetwood and again there's a big difference between criticizing players if they've they've done things that deserve to be you know d- that deserve that attention and criticizing players because they've played poorly you know I, I don't think the two equate at all and I'd I, I can't really think off the top of my head. M- many players I've seen go through the club who genuinely wanted to play poorly or were trying to make a point by playing poorly. In the main, Leeds didn't recruit well, and the squads they had were not up to anything like that, the expectation of the crowd. Um, but I mean, the thing that got my Twitter account going in the main was the sale of the club by Bates to GFH because it was the first time that you would run a story in the evening saying, you know, with. Details of what was happening, or what might be happening, or how things were progressing, and then at seven in the morning, you would have people asking you if, the, if there was any more news, and you'd say, "Well, been in bed all night," and mm-hmm. you know what realistically is going to have changed since <laughs> um, 10, and, 10 o'clock last night. But that was the way in which it was shifting. You were going from the point where you were doing a back page every day and or, you know features to, to run in the paper to the stage where people did want constant coverage, twenty four hours if it was possible, but you know minute by minute if if that was doable but regular updates um and and twitter also gave people a platform to can ask questions you know specific questions about it so that i always think of that as the tip over from newspaper reporting to, to online reporting
0: for me phil i, I find it uh, totally insane really that despite all the um turbulence that was going on at the club that they never actually got relegated under Chilino. I, I i find that really hard to believe i guess that that that's one thing that that was probably missing from all them years of chaos, I imagine. It was
2: there was a point in his first season 2014 15 where it it felt like it was close and it felt a little like it was coming. They'd um they'd started off with Hockaday, they'd sacked him, they'd gone on to Darko Milanich, um, Slovenian who'd come in from Sturm Graz, they'd sacked him. I mean, he was in charge for all of 32 days, and <laughs> as much as I, I honestly. Couldn't really tell you anything about him, I I felt sorry for him because the the day when he was sacked, uh, they lost at home to Wolves, it was the first day that his family had come over to see him, you know, they hadn't had the opportunity because he'd been there for so, you know, such a short period of time. They came over, they watched the game, Leeds lost, he, he got the bullet straight afterwards. And then they went on to, to Redfern, um, who, who stepped up from academy manager to um, to first team coach. And they played at Derby just before the turn of the year, and they they barely got out of their own half. They were beaten 2-0, but it was the easiest win you've, you've ever seen. And at that point, as I recall, they were 21st or 20th, and they were, they were right above the bottom three. And it did feel, I remember looking at Redfern and thinking, this feels as if it's about to cave in, you know, this this feels as if it, it's going to take something really big to, to get them out of this. And actually, he managed that in the second half of the season. He, he did, a, I, I felt, a really good job in that period and, and got the results together, made sure that actually there was quite a bit of distance between them and, and the relegation places towards the end. And, you know, fr- from then on, I don't think it, it ever felt too serious again Rosler didn't last very long so the, the form was a was a concern monk initially took a a while to get going and you know I, I still feel it was a game against Blackburn where huge save from Rob Green at one all. Um, towards the end of the game and Leeds won that two one. And I still wonder if that chance had gone in, if if that would have been the end of Monk there and then. Um and it, you know, in, in that little period it, it wasn't looking wasn't looking brilliant. It wasn't looking too promising. But in terms of relegation, with the exception of that, you know, that juncture at Derby where you you really did start to fear for them a little bit, it, it actually wasn't too much of a risk.
0: Yeah, and I know you mentioned. Um, I know you mentioned a few managers there. We worked with with Uwe at Fleetwood, and um, I know after having um, conversation with Uwe, you know, um, kind of away from the madness, really, and speaking to him about Leeds, and and I think genuinely, he really wanted it to go really well. I think he was probably bought into Leeds and 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 enjoyed his time there. Obviously, he didn't enjoy how it ended, but I think a lot of people forget about when Uwe was there that he signed Chris Wood, uh, Stuart Dallas. Obviously, Dallas scored at the weekend. You know, There's yeah. still kind of. Um, and, and that's probably part of the Leeds team now, there's still kind of little bits of the legacy of uh, kind of uh, the current ownership at the moment, pre that with, with Chilino that, that still lives on kind of in the team a little bit now,
2: really. Very much so. And I mean, you know, Chilino was there when they signed um, Luke Ayling. Um, Liam Cooper was done in mean, Chilino's first transfer window. Again, with Uwe, uh, it's, really hard to to pass judgment on him it's it's fair to say that the game the period where he was in charge um wasn't particularly impressive and, and you know there were poor results in in that and, and it cost him but it wasn't a great environment to work in either and um it was such a short period of time that that he was given that he, it, it it feels very harsh to to kind of draw judgment on but you see with something like hockey day Hockey Day's credentials seem so thin, and it was such an outlandish appointment that it was impossible to to look at that and and to think, do you know what this might work? You know, this this might actually work. All of us kind of felt this is, you know, this will be over before you blink because it's just the wrong appointment, and there's, you know, the, the, there isn't the um, the track record there to suggest that that it'll be a success. Uwe had obviously gone around a, a couple of other clubs in, in England. Um, he he had a, a very good career as a player. He was he was pretty well thought of as as a coach. And I think we all saw it as a, a decent appointment. I mean he's very you'll know yourself, He's very intense as is Uwe. Um and I think like a, a lot of managers, it, it probably I can't imagine him sleeping much at night, you know, and, and it just seems like it's it's all hours and it is constantly on his mind. But it, it is the case that some of the players, some of the the players who've lasted longest at Leeds or have been most effective at Leeds and those that Bielsa inherited. Some of them came from, yeah, previous previous regimes. As I say, I mean, I was talking to you before we, we started this about Leeds playing at Fleetwood in the league cup um, back in 2016 and Ailing was signed that night you know the deal for him from Bristol City uh, for him from Bristol City was done that evening and he's you know he's been as good a right back as Leeds have had probably since Gary Kelly i mean he's been he's been absolutely fantastic and a total snippet at 200 grand so it wasn't all bad and i think that that's the point but it, it not being all bad is not enough to knit together to make you promotion squad you know or to get you out of the the championship there needs to be a a complete plan and and they didn't have that until Bielsa came through the door
1: today's podcast is brought to you by the nationally acclaimed Friends of Ham bar and Chartery. Friends of Ham have recently launched their online shop to bring people all over the country some of their finest artisan cheese natural wines and craft beers that the world has to offer whether it's a few drinks nibbles or a whole night in friends of ham have you covered with everything from small portions of meat or cheese for cooking cheese and meat platters as well as substantial food and drink pairing experiences nationwide deliveries are available go and check them out at www.friendsofham.com for an exclusive 10 percent discount the press room podcast listeners can use the code press room 10 at checkout for the 10 percent discount I've so been a Blackpool fan, Phil, I kind of know the, the struggles and the club and the owners, but that's a, another story for another <laughs> time, I think. Um, but out of all the managers that you've mentioned there uh, and you might have worked with uh, and Leeds obviously during the Chileno time, who do you think could have been given longer time in charge there to really have a go at this Leeds side and, and hopefully push them back into the Championship
2: and Premier League? I think potentially with McDermott, if they hadn't pulled the, the rug from under him. I mean, I, I can't pretend that the results weren't dismal in the second half of the season. And, and obviously some of the blame for that has to fall on him. But but equally, I'm not sure that there's, there's ever been a, a period in all the time I've covered. I mean, the, the, perhaps others, but very few that have been set up in a way that were, were totally there to just ruin a manager, really. It was, it was a really difficult dressing room to to manage. It was a very difficult ownership structure to to manage as well, and and the idea of managing upwards with Chilino was was sometimes impossible. Uh, he'd obviously got promoted before with Reading as well. So I, you know they, they were in a playoff position at the turn of the year, um, and I think pretty optimistic about that before it all it all fell apart. And I guess I mean opinions kind of divided on Gary Monk, and it wasn't helped by the fact that you know he he, he resigned as he did. And and personally, I felt it kind of suited him and suited Leeds for that to happen. I think Leeds. Woodrad owner wanted to go in a different direction or were kind of minded that that might be a, a good option. Uh, and equally, you know, Monk was going to have other alternatives out there and he, he was appointed as middle, Middlesbrough manager in no time. But there were good things in his season in charge. There really were. They, they should have made the playoffs the were, they were perfectly placed to make the playoffs. He, he I thought, did a good job... With a squad that had been meandering um, for a long time, and and sort of put together, you know, started to uncover successful partnerships in there. Kind of made the best of Chris Woody scored thirty goals. Um, Hernandez, that you know, came back from um, the Middle East, and and has obviously been. I mean, I, I have Hernandez down as the best signing of the past twenty years, give or take. He, he's been he's been fantastic. So those two, possibly. Um, I think in the main though, the, the decisions that have been taken were probably largely correct um I think the problem was that although it was the correct decision to move the managers on it was the wrong decision to appoint some of them in the first place um and I don't I mean it it, this goes without saying really but nobody has come close to doing what Bielsa has done and not just not just with the results and, and the way they play but also in kind of kind of killing all the politics and the infighting and the the kind of poison that seemed to permanently be at Leeds and and permanently infect people. I I always say this but it it helped that you suddenly had a manager who was bigger personality than the owner and a bigger personality than any of the players and and was basically untouchable in terms of authority Um, and it was exactly what Leeds needed Um, and it's not a surprise. it's a surprise that he was able to make the impact as quickly as he as he did. But it's not a surprise in general knowing him and having seen how he works that it's been such a big success.
0: If we can, Phil, move on from the the the, the time at the YEP and, and now moving into what you're doing now at the athletic. What what kind of prompted the to move the move to the athletic? And I guess in the same breath, I guess it was quite hard to leave behind, you know, you've obviously been at the YEP for for you know 13 15 years or or whatever it was in the end that must have been quite a big decision for you you know to make that switch into you know obviously athletic had kind of been up and running in America quite an American thing and and, and just coming into the UK so it was quite a quite a new kind of uh, platform for media really.
2: There were things that made it easier and things that that made it difficult I mean the fact that I was being offered the job that was you're solely writing about Leeds United meant that it was keeping me in a field that I knew a fair amount about. Um, and and it meant that you'd kind of transition from job to job should be quite easy and you would be able to go there with a lot of ideas and a lot of thoughts about the, the features and the pieces that that you might produce. And, I mean, I knew of The Athletic, although I don't follow American sport particularly quickly, so I hadn't been a subscriber um, and, and I hadn't read a huge amount that was on the site. But when I looked at it, it, it looked extremely professional and you could tell with the app that there'd been a lot of investment in it. Um, I mean, I can't pretend that the offer wasn't very good and, and people know that to be the case, not just to me, but to, to other people, other people who join the Athletic as well. But I like the project and I like the plan and I like the idea of of what they wanted to do. And and I have to say, I've, I've always been in favour of subscription models because I, I just don't really see how in the longer term media outlets in general can survive without having a a steady stream of income like that. I've I've never understood the the trend of giving everything away for free. I can't think of any other business that does that, you know, where it it gives its product away for nothing and encourages people who who want to read their stuff or or want to you know to watch it or whatever else to expect to have it for free to the point where it's at you actually have to be very persuasive to say to people, look, it would be an advantage to us obviously if you pay it because from a business point of view that that helps but also it, it just helps to to kind of support good journalism and, and good good football writing um so i mean i i was contacted the, the day after leeds lost in the playoffs um to derby under bielsa um and i have to say i was very sold i mean obviously it, it was kind of delicate decision because it was a new startup in the uk so you had to consider the likelihood of it being a success and and what the consequences would be if it wasn't you know where where it would leave you but once you started to get wind of who else was being approached and once you started to get wind of who else had said yes or who else was kind of potentially going to st- say yes there was a lot to be really keen on a lot to be excited about and i have to say when it came around to making the decision it wasn't it wasn't difficult at all and i haven't i haven't regretted it at any stage.
1: Just in, in terms of your work, how have you found the way that you work in terms of breaking news to be different now working with The Athletic? Is it just a different kettle of fish with it being online and, and all that
2: stuff? It is in the sense that we um, we work more on longer features and, and longer-term pieces. So you tend to plan for them over weeks, um, sometimes months. I mean, in my first year with them, I did a big feature on the um, the. 20 years on the anniversary of the the two Leeds fans who were killed in Galatasaray I mean that was a that was a five-month job pulling that together not five months of writing um but five months of trying to pin down people for interviews and to um, to meet with family members and um, Peter Ridsdale, who'd been chairman of the club and, and somebody who'd worked as security guard for Leeds over in Turkey um, d- during that, those, those couple of days. Uh, so that's the way we tend to think. It does tend to be longer longer term planning. Um, we still do do breaking news and, and we still will run um, stories, new stories, transfer stories when they, um, when they pop up. But it does move you away from what was your day-to-day work. So, you know, th- academy players going out on loan under 23s matches all, all that sort of stuff you it's not that you don't pay attention to it but you don't cover it in the same way um and mm-hmm. some of it you don't cover at all you know some of it you you'll take notice of and you'll take note of of what's gone on but it is that is more your, your content for your local papers you know and, and i always say i think there's absolutely markets for both i think there are people out there who want um the immediacy of, of news and, and the the features and the coverage that that local papers do. I think there are people who equally want the, the longer reads that places like the Athletic and, and other nationals um have the time and also let's be honest have the budget as well mm-hmm. to to do. I think there's a, a mixture of both. But I do like the fact I mean the evening post for example have gone to a subscription model now um and quite a few of the nationals have and I do think I do think it's a really good thing. I, I think you should be saying to people You know, it costs to do this stuff. So if you want it, if you want to have it, really, it's not unreasonable to to ask you you to pay for it. And I mean, I can't imagine the day when McDonald's will say to people, come in and and have all our food for free. And what we'll do is we'll just get loads of advertising and pay for it that way.
1: I actually want to bring a question in here. We've obviously, when we announced that you could on the show, we got uh, fans to, or your supporters, should we say, and Leeds fans to, to send questions. Um, your own supporters. Not your, own their supporters own, well. yeah. your own fan club. <laughs> um, but but someone uh, asked it, Aidan said, uh, do you see sports media in the near future following a similar model to The Athletic? Uh, and if so, what do you think papers can do differently to prevent this from happening?
2: I think it already is. I mean, the Telegraph... Um, Uh, this subscription site um the independent two the times moved to that model a long time ago and and there is a lot that comes up on those websites that i want to read you know and and a lot of a lot of stuff that you realize that if you do want to read it, i mean we do free trials and so on and and a lot of the papers will do this this scheme where you get a couple of free articles a week but after that you um you know you, you need to pay for it and I think what happens is that you find that when you get sucked in and drawn into reading some of it you want to read more of it and and there is that natural temptation um to to do that i think at the moment the the guardian are quite unusual in that they sort of ask for that everything's free but they sort of ask for people to donate um through their own goodwill and by the sense of things i have a huge number of people who do um but i'm not sure because advertising seems to be the only route to income aside from you know finding people to to back you financially off, off their own steam you surely have to find a some form of revenue in some form of, of regular and, and reliable income um and i think given that you know the sales of actual newspapers have, have been decreasing for a long time now and you're not pulling in the same amount of advertising revenue from them and you're not pulling in the same amount of money from cover price sales You have to find an alternative route. And like I say, I'm I'm pleased to see that that other places are doing the same because I think it is the way everybody has to go.
1: I completely agree, I think, especially with COVID coming on and and people touching kind of different things and newspapers that people are going to go to more online services, aren't they? So I Uh I agree with what you're saying there. Uh, But slightly against that, now working with Bielsa, it must have reinvigorated the whole city and yourself on a professional level too just the whole atmosphere around the city the
2: community and even match days for you no it has i mean i I don't think in all the time i've done the job um anybody has come close to the sort of unanimous popularity that he has i mean results have helped there's no doubt about that because if if it had not gone well for him, if it had been a slow burn, if there'd been aspects of his style of play or or whatever else that had been a bit unconvincing, then I'm not sure that there's that, that sort of any enigmatic or kind of mythical qualities um, would have captured people in quite the same way. So so obviously the, the football has, has helped, but there's a lot to like about him. I mean, he's, he's incredibly thoughtful in the way that he talks and, And the way that he addresses questions that you you ask him, you can tell quite often when he's got things on his mind that he specifically wants to speak about that. That he's given a lot of time to thinking it over and, and a lot of time to thinking about what he's going to say so that what he says is, is relatively you know, credible and, and is, is difficult to challenge. Um, He, he comes up with great stories, for, almost unintentionally because he isn't much of a showman in that sense, but great stories from his early years and previous jobs at other clubs or, or with Argentina or, or Chile and so on. But it's always part of a bigger picture and it's always very insightful. I mean, he, he's he clearly doesn't particularly like the commercialization of football and I mean you, you have to see that in the context of somebody who, who earns a lot of money as manager of Leeds and, and has done in other jobs but I don't get the sense that the money is I, th- I don't get the sense that it makes his life any different I mean he lives above a chiropractor's in Wetherby he's got a small flat there and you do, you see him wandering around the streets he. he Shops in Morrison's. He shops the local bakery. He he doesn't understand Mm -hmm. why this is of any interest. He doesn't understand why people fixate on this stuff. But the reason they do is because it's just not what elite managers do. You know, you don't see Guardiola in Morrison's Mm -hmm. and and so on. It just Mm -hmm. is, or at least you don't expect to. You know, whereas with him, he's quite happily he quite happily mixes with people in Costa on Sunday morning as he's um, as he's doing his work and he's got all his analytical sheets out. But they, basically, it, the the land here was perfectly laid for some form of deity to come in and do the trick for Leeds. So the, the, the city was absolutely ready to embrace anybody who was capable of doing what he was doing. And it was really easy early on to latch onto the feeling that they were onto a very, very good thing with him because of how they were playing and, and because of how he was, because of his his demeanour. He, he And I think for, for his part... He clearly feels what it's all about here. I think he sees a lot of correlations between Leeds and Newell's old boys, his first club back in Rosario, and he he respects the fan base, he respects the passion of it all. He likes the club, he likes the environment, he likes the city, he likes the people. It's just been a perfectly, perfectly good match, and I mean, it's quite funny because you go from this impression of somebody who's a bit off the wall and a bit of a loose cannon before he comes in, and then you know, he's he different. I'll certainly, certainly say that. And and you know, two and a half years on, he strikes you as about the most controlled and in control coaches you've you've ever dealt with. It's it's all upstairs, and it all seems to be perfectly placed. And that's not to say it'll work forever, but it's worked incredibly well so far.
1: How, how's your Spanish, Phil? Just got to ask that
2: when he's translating. Uh, absolutely terrible. I mean, <laughs> it's it's one of my big regrets, really, and not just with Bielsa, although it would have made things easier with with him. But uh, you know, it, it's never. I don't think it's never ever been any more valuable to be able to speak Spanish, given the people who are coming into mm-hmm. the English game, given the way in which people, you know, journalists in England now cover football far further afield. I mean, I've done a lot of work with people in Argentina um since b else has come in and you know you are always at the whim of google translate or them being able <laughs> to speak a bit of english and, and being able to help you out or somebody else i've been lucky um one guy um jamie in ireland who i got to know through this has been absolutely brilliant he speaks spanish and uh, you know doing translations for me with some of bielsa's former players and and so on it, it's it, i i wish i really wish i could um, but the reality is, you know, some people chirp at Bielsa for not being able to speak English here. I mean, my Spanish is worse than his English. There's no question of that.
0: We won't, we won't ask to hear any of it, Phil. <laughs> we'll
2: leave
0: that, leave that in the... uh <laughs> leave not. that out. Yeah. <laughs> um, we've, we've, we'll, we'll just wrap up if we can, Phil. We've got quite yeah. a few uh, questions that we'll just fire through. Uh, the first of which, we put something out about um, kind of like a bit of word association, really. Um, I, I've got some kind of... Some things in your time while you've been covering leads, mainly mainly people, really. If you can uh, try and sum them up in one word. I know that's quite okay. difficult. Yeah, yeah, yeah um, I'll do my best. Yeah. We'll, we'll see how we go. But an easy one to start with, uh, which is Calvin Phillips. Dynamite. Darko Milanich. Who? <laughs> uh Patrick Bamford. Survivor. Ellen road AG. Steve Evans. Forgotten, Dave Hockaday, baffling, Massimo Cellino, bonkers, and Marcelo Bielsa,
2: genius. I like that. To be fair, I didn't. I didn't feel with Bamford. I mean, I think Diamond actually might have been better than Dynamite for for Phillips. Bamford, I can't quite put my finger on. And what I want to say about Bamford, it, it's just that. It's funny because the Athletic said to me the other day, um, could you just do 150 words on why Bamford for England is, you know, potentially a sort of credible argument? And I was saying in it, if you go back 12 months, there were arguments going on around here about whether Bamford was good enough for Leeds in the Championship, you know, let let alone England. And suddenly he's in this position where actually you can make a pretty strong argument for him. And he's gone through a lot of years in a lot of clubs where people were sceptical about him and where people didn't really give him a break and then you get to this point 27 years old and he's he seems to be absolutely at his, at his peak and, and a really good guy as well it was got few... yeah i remember
0: when i remember when they signed uh Nketiah from arsenal and there was a lot of talk then i think more than ever wanted that 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 he should be that the that and
2: probably should be in the team in place of him he's a good player Nketiah, and and the thing is I, I think if truth be told he's probably a better finisher than Bamford as well. I mean, he was he was absolutely dead eye, and, and part of the issue for Bamford was that you'd have Vinketia coming off the bench and scoring with his first touch or one of his first chances after the game, where quite a few others had, had gone begging. But I honestly don't think that Bielsa has ever been sold or convinced by a player who just hung around scoring from six yards out. And I don't mean that's I don't mean that about Nketiah. but I mean even if you gave Bielsa a striker who scored forty goals a season but did nothing but poach in the box. I don't think he'd be interested because there's so much more to it from his perspective, um, playing up front. So he likes Bamford because Bamford runs the channels, because he can launch the the high press, because he can kind of play, even when he's isolated and amongst centre-backs, he can can play there and and be effective. But he does score goals and he does create goals, so Bielsa sees him as more of the, the whole package. And I'll say this as well. The more people clamoured for Nketiah to start, the more utterly resistant Bielsa was to to doing it. He was just dead set on the fact that that he had it right and he's been he's been proven correct.
1: Yeah, Bamford's been absolute star this year, I think, obviously, a goal and assist at, at Leicester. Um well, I think the last game, if we probably, or it might be a few games when this goes out. But um, some questions that have come in, Phil um, say quick fire. Some of our guests have taken minutes. But Harry's got a question here. He says, he says that he feels blessed at the moment uh, with the current owners and, and what they've achieved over recent years. But but wants to know, looking back at the uh, Chileno era, did you see or witness uh, any method to the madness, or was he just nuts?
2: There was method to the madness in his last season, which was when Radrazzani came in and Monk was there. But I got the feeling that was because, in part because of the negotiation over the sale of the club, he he took a bit of a backward step and and kept kept out of things um, in a way that he just hadn't in, in the first two seasons. So by that point, you started to feel things falling into place a little bit more. Um, again... In trying to cut costs and trim the wage bill, you sort of understood where he was coming from and Leeds were not, not sustainable in, in any way at that stage. But in terms of a kind of grand plan, you, you couldn't see any way that it was going to work and any way that it was going to do anything other than just leave, leave Leeds mid-table in the Championship.
0: Question from Steve, Phil. Um, quite a simple one on this. What was that Bielsa press conference like?
2: Well, it was an interesting day because... For for four or five days, there'd been some supportive voices for him. And I I have to say that right from the outset, my view was that he he shouldn't have done it. And it was quite apparent that he shouldn't have done it. And you kind of wished that somebody at the club had clocked it and said, look, this is only going to end in trouble, this. But to my mind, it didn't seem like a particularly big deal. I still don't think it was worth anything like the 200 grand fine that they they got. But he got, you know, he, he got peppered from various quarters and and quite a few people in the media. And he was very aware of it. He was aware of the criticism. And we we got a phone call on the Wednesday afternoon, about three o'clock to say, look, he's called a press conference this afternoon um, at Thorpe Arch. I would suggest that you you get there. So obviously your first question is to say, well, what's it about? You know, what's he going to do? Because it was calf going through your mind that if he was objecting, you know, viciously to what was being said about him, that he might walk out, you know, he, he might resign. And the club were quite honest in saying, we honestly don't know. You know, he hasn't really telegraphed any of this or communicated what the, the grand plan is, but he's just said this will be happening at five. And you know, nobody was was gonna kind of challenge him on that. By the time we got to the ground, you were aware that he wasn't gonna quit and that it was it wasn't actually anything to do with that. And the players had trained that morning, they'd been kind of reassured that it, you know, everything was was all right. Um, but as soon as you got into the room and you sat down and you saw the screens in front of you and the overhead projector and his staff packed at the back of, of the room in the little corner, um, you knew that it was going to be kind of weird and and kind of wonderful. And it was amazing, actually, to get that level of insight into the way that clubs actually analyze players you know i think a lot of us know vaguely what they do or roughly what they do people we've got a couple of guys tom warville mark carey who really clued in on analytics so that you know they'll be familiar with a lot of this stuff but to see what actually happens and to see the the, the specifics of how bielsa does it and the depths that he goes to was it was actually a real privilege i don't expect to ever have that amount of insight into the managers work again because most managers do not want you anywhere near that sort of stuff it's it's pretty pretty sacred ground um so it was long it was dramatic um it was really really interesting and a little like some of Chilinos I'll, I don't think I'll ever have anything that quite compares to it. yeah it was fascinating to see
0: definitely it was uh, a, bit, a bit bonkers as well um question from Tom I know you've kind of touched on this already a little bit but what are the best and worst signings that you've seen in your time covering Leeds
2: Well, I think Hernandez would be the best. Um, There have been some very, very good ones. I mean, Snodgrass as well. um, He was a a bit of a steal from Livingston um, without any question. I think prior to Hernandez, he'd been the best player to to come in and and go out of Leeds in those EFL years. But I mean, Hernandez was, he'd gone to the Middle East from Swansea and he was only in his late 20s, but it always feels like a bit of a retirement move that, you know, it feels like you're going for the money. And he said to me himself, you know, the, the financial side of it was very good. So hard to, to say no to. Um, and then he'd gone back to Spain where he'd been on loan with um, Rayo Vallecano, but they'd been relegated. And it, he was a, a little bit sort of out in the wilderness. Um, and even when he came in, it was a kind of slow burn getting him back up to speed. But three player of the year trophies on the bounce for him and his his form in Bielsa's first season was just unbelievable and but even that doesn't touch on the the way he played in the last eight games of the last season the way he dragged them over the line it was that kind of touch by god thing and I, and I think I think that that'll be his peak you know I'm not sure we'll we'll see that from him again at Leeds but it's kind of remarkable that at 35 Leeds were we'll somehow seeing the best of a guy who'd been Spain international and, and played at Valencia in terms of the worst signings, I mean, how, how long have you got? It, it's <laughs> the, there've been so many players who who haven't been up to. It. I think, I mean, Grandi and who came on loan from Palermo. He was signed without a medical, and he had a thigh injury and played one game and then left um, without you know leaving a leaving a scratch. That was a, a terrible terrible deal. Um, I think Edgar Chani as well, striker who came in second half of the season when Neil Redfern was manager. Uh, just mystifying really that you could have looked at him on the basis of what we saw and thought that that he was a good sign in in the championship and those are two that that certainly certainly jump out i, I don't think those have been two of the worst in terms of finance you know i don't think they've they've kind of cost the club ridiculously not in the, the way that for example augustine who came in from leipzig last season that could that could really be expensive that for for very little in return because that's still being argued about with with fifa um but in yeah i, I think chani definitely one that i looked at and thought I, I have no idea what you know why that that deal has been done but certainly not alone in that sense before we uh
1: we end this phil um we always, we've asked every guest so far on the podcast this question we know you're on the road a lot traveling up and down the country but if you were to go to a tesco asda co-op what would be your go-to meal deal? So it could be a sandwich or a pasty, a crisp snack and a drink.
2: Probably something as lame as a box, you like box pasta salad. I eat a lot of them. I always remember Neil Warnock saying to us that it's it's a battle to stay thin or remotely thin when you're a manager. And I think the same is true of football journalism. Like, you'll, you'll know, you spend so much time travelling that, you, sometimes you just have to grab whatever's mm-hmm. on offer. And it's different for the likes of Sam when they're holed up in like five-star hotels and all that on a Friday night, you know, <laughs> salmon, and, salmon and caviar and all that. But I mean, it, at two in the morning, you've basically got a, a service a service station and a garage, haven't you? Um, so, so what do you go for? So yeah, do you know what? I think pasta salad with a Snickers Duo and a bottle of Fanta, yeah. Nice. Nothing <laughs> more exciting than that. <laughs> that's as glamorous as it gets, everybody. That's the
0: that's life on the road covering Leeds home and away. Uh, no, Phil, thanks, thanks so much. That brings it nicely to an end there. Thanks so much for joining us. It's been no, it's great been having pleasure. you on. Um, we, we've loved love chatting to you and, and, and the story of, of starting out in journalism and then going going on to 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 a dream job in many people's eyes. Um, it, it's not come through anything less than hard work and 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 everything that comes with that. So again, mate, thanks for thanks for joining us. It's been great having you on and, and hopefully we'll see you
2: soon. Thanks, guys.
1: Hi everyone! Remember to follow our Twitter page at Press Room Pod for latest updates, guest announcements, and to have your chance to put forward questions to our guests.